According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Proverbs once again, Proverbs chapter 8. A couple of things to remember. Have you uh, moved your clocks forward yet? All right. Do that before Sunday. All right, do that before Sunday. Go ahead and do it now. You know, that way you're not, you don't want to be late Sunday morning. So this is the weekend for time change. We are springing forward and uh, losing an hour of sleep. And uh, that's, that's the first thing. Remember that for Sunday morning. And then next week on Wednesday, we're not having the Proverbs class next Wednesday morning. All right, we're taking one week off because I will be in Houston next week. We have the uh, uh, annual uh, Schaefer Seminary Bible Conference. That's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of next week. So um, no uh, Proverbs class that morning. All right, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. From everlasting I was established. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundary so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. All right, we are in the midst of this section here, verses 22 through 31, a look at the birthing of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And we've had a couple of weeks in this, and I want to see if we can get uh, more ground covered here today. It'd be nice if we could wrap it up today, just because we do have a week off next week. Uh, but I suspect we, uh, we're still going to struggle. These, these are deep things, all right? These are deep things, and, and it's helpful to slow it down and to consider, to think things through, and, uh, and to ask ourselves what it is that uh, the Father is making clear to us here this morning. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to expand our capacity. Shall we pray? Father, I do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. I thank you for the glory of your son. And uh, Father, every chance we have to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, Father, is a blessing for us. I thank you that this is a passage of scripture that fixes upon our Savior. And uh, Father, does so in ways beyond, uh, sometimes uh, beyond what we could ask or think, Father. And I pray that you would expand our capacity to uh, broaden our uh, thinking and uh, to bless our time in the Word today. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. In a lot of ways, it's uh, somewhat difficult because we're time creatures. We're creatures of time. We're bound by time. We were born within the boundaries of time, and we've been proceeding through time one day at a time ever since, right? Uh, we, and we want to roll back the clock sometimes, and we just can't do it. And uh, it would be great if we can go back to an earlier self and warn us about certain things and not make those kind of mistakes. But we can't do that. We, uh, we're proceeding one day at a time and one day per day on that linear forward direction that, that God designed uh, time to be. And yet we understand from Scripture that God is outside of space and time, that he is the creator of space, the creator of time. He is the eternal I am, always has been, always is, always will be. And uh, so when we have a passage that, that talks about before anything else, um, you know, we can maybe visualize that or, or imagine what it would be like to precede time. Uh, but uh, sometimes we just struggle. How do we, how do we operate in a timeless sense? How do we operate timelessly in uh, the dispensation of Alpha, in the time frame before there was time, for example? And, and it's useful to consider that because we're headed there ourselves. We are headed for Omega. We are headed for the end. And then what happens after the end? And what is the nature of, of time once we are in eternity future? 
And so every so often, I guess it's a good thing to ponder eternity past and an eternity future and uh, that boundary moment between, uh, between them as we uh, are looking at the boundary moment here. So if you are uh, following in the outline, we are in, we've, we've given two points of study here from uh, chapter 8 in uh, verses 1 through 11, we were dealing with in point 1 and in point 2. No, point 1 was uh, 1 through 11, if I have that correct. There it is, personified wisdom as a sharp contrast with the cunning woman of chapter 7. And then we have point 2 as we took verses 12 through 21. Wisdom speaking in the first person as to her associations and her disassociations. It's always a mark of wisdom who you associate with, and it's a mark of wisdom who you disassociate from. All right, The people you surround yourself with is a testimony to your wisdom. So too are the people that you remove far from you. That also is a testimony to your wisdom. And uh, there are love and hate applications that are to be found there in verses 12 through 21, which now gets us to main point 3, verses 22 and following. Really, verses 22 through 31. There's still um, five more verses beyond that to wrap up the chapter. But for now, main point 3. This is the most detailed passage in all the Bible concerning the begetting of the begotten Son. All right, the beginning of the begotten son. And that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a, a birth. And we have birth language throughout, particularly the first four verses here, are filled with birth language. And the final verses, 30 and 31, are filled with uh, toddler language, child language that we would find in, in verses 30 and 31. So we have childbirth that's expressed in 22, 23, 24, and 25. And then we have creation in view. And then we have the toddler language of verses 30 and 31. And so all of this together paints a picture for the begetting of the begotten Son. All right? And like I say, this is our third week to get to it. So um, hopefully we, uh, we understand the, the issues involved that, uh, that the, the normal view and what you will encounter time and time again is, of course, that Jesus Christ is the God-man. That's Orthodox Christianity, hypostatic union. He is undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person forever. That God became a man, and God saved us. It was the God-man who saved us. That there was no man who could save humanity until the God-man came, the sinless uh, God-man who came and gave himself in our place. And so these are doctrines that are, that are crucial in our Christianity. And, uh, and so it's vital that we understand this, and that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternal, always have been, always will be. But God the Son is the one that, where, as it says in John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All right, It's God the Son who became the God-man. God the Father is not the God-man. God the Holy Spirit is not the God-man. But God the Son is the God-man. And so we're, we're dealing with issues that, are, that humanity will struggle with. Trinity. Humanity struggles with Trinity. Uh, e- timeless eternity past. We struggle with timeless eternity past. And then hypostatic union. Uh, these are all issues that have boggled minds for a long, long time. And probably will continue to boggle minds for a long, long time. But here we have, though, the begetting of the begotten. All right? The Father's not begotten. The Holy Spirit's not begotten. The Son is begotten. All right? But it's not His deity that's begotten. The deity is eternal. It's His humanity that's begotten. All right? And uh, if we did not have Proverbs 8 in our Bible, we would struggle to ask or to answer, well, when was the humanity begotten? And we would assume, like everybody else assumes, that humanity was begotten in the Bethlehem manger, that humanity was begotten when a baby was born, all right? That in the Bethlehem manger then, the Jesus Christ was birthed into the world, and, uh, and so that was the beginning of his humanity was with the uh, conception of the virgin birth in, in the Virgin Mary, all right? Until we read Proverbs 8. And, to, and then we read Proverbs 8, and we realize, wait a minute, this is before the foundation of the earth. 
This is before, this is when there were no mountains, when there was no earth, when there was no circle inscribed, when there was no, uh, when the uh, earth was hung, in, in, in realms that precede all of humanity. All right? Humanity was birthed. And that becomes important. And we'll, uh, we'll deal with that as well. Um, so don't be shocked, all right? And if you try to explain this to somebody, you know, you're, you're hanging out in the cafeteria at work and they, you know, they ask, well, what was your pastor preaching on? Um, you know, you'll have a possibility to discuss it with them. That uh, the humanity of Jesus Christ is not dependent upon his body. His physical body is what he received when the virgin was impregnated. But that was not the beginning of his humanity, all right? As per this text, as well as Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 5 and Psalm 89 and, and s- several other passages of Scripture, all right? That's why I mentioned in my opening prayer, we want to broaden our capacity to think. We want to broaden our capacity. It's not easy for me. I'm not an abstract guy. I'm a concrete kind of guy. Show me the verse. Um, but once we can let go of the fact that uh, our humanity is not tied to our bodies, then I think we do a better time with it. It's not dependent upon our bodies because we're getting new bodies all the time. Cells are dying. New cells are being created. We're getting new bodies all the time. And, and in the case of physical death, for example, my mother is still human even though uh, she's departed from her body, right? And uh, she's still human. And she has a new body that she'll receive at the, at the resurrection, and she's still human in the, in the glorified body, in the intermediate body, and in the, in the mortal body. Uh, we're human throughout the entire process. The, it, the body does not, defi- does not define our humanity, see? And so once you accept that as a concept, then you can accept the fact that his Jesus Christ's human spirit, his human soul spirit, is what was birthed by the Father and was invested in the person of God the Son. And as soon as we grasp that, then we accept the fact that Father, Son, Holy Spirit have been around forever, but the humanity of Jesus Christ began here at this alpha moment of time, at this, the boundary, it forms the boundary of eternity past to the temporal present. We'll say some more on that here as well. And so uh, we uh, begin with Proverbs, I'm sorry, with Psalm 2-7. Today I have begotten you. It is, a, it is a significant text. It is significant within the scope of Psalm 2. And it's significant as it is employed in the New Testament with three direct quotations and three uh, additional allusions. Uh, six places total in the New Testament where thou art my son, today I have begotten you. Is, uh, is a significant feature, all right? And uh, as we read it in Psalm 2, it says, today I have begotten you. But nothing in Psalm 2 tells us when that today was, all right? Today, well, what is today? Is it the day that he sat on the throne of David? Is it on the day that he begins his millennial kingdom? Is it the day that he rose from the dead? Some people go to Acts 13 and try to try to defend um, the, the begetting at, with his resurrection. That was the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the beginning moment, which boggles my mind where they try to defend that. But to me, the begotten son is the one that came into the world. The begotten son is the one that died on the cross. The begotten son is the one that rose from the dead because he already was the begotten son. That the resurrection is the proof and the evidence that he is, the testimony that he is the begotten son. But the beginning had to have preceded the resurrection. Okay. Although there are folks that try to defend the, the resurrection event as the, uh, the today that's spoken of there, for today I have begotten me. In which case, it's not the begotten son that went to the cross. It's not the begotten son that ministered for three and a half years. But we know it was, because the heavens were open and the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so... We have three allusions, Matthew 3, 7, Mark 1, 11, Luke 3, 22. At the moment of his baptism at the River Jordan, the heavens were opened, and God the Father said, this is my beloved Son. The Holy Spirit descended as a dove. We had the whole Trinity in view there at the, at the uh, River Jordan when Jesus was baptized. The three New Testament quotations come in Acts 13, 33. I mentioned that's uh, one that comes in, in connection with the resurrection. Hebrews 1, 5 and Hebrews 5, 5. But never, none of those New Testament passages and and Psalm 2 itself, none of those passages tell you 
what day is today? What is the today that's being spoken of? And why is the Father making such an emphasis on today? See, we also have Psalm 89 for uh, sonship uh, in a pre-human or a pre-Adam context when God is dealing with the angels there in uh, Psalm 89, verses 26 and 27. All right, we did dealt with that a couple weeks ago. Moving on to point B then, John 1, in the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos. Now in John 1, we have a parallel to Proverbs 8. John is a theological development of Proverbs 8. In the beginning was the Logos. And that is a restatement, a rephrasing from Proverbs 8, where Solomon says, in the beginning, or actually from the beginning, was the wisdom. All right? In the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was from, or from the beginning was the wisdom. That's a big difference between in and from. Okay? In and from. If you think about in, speaks of a, of, a, of a, a locative sense, a place in. But then from speaks of a progression from that point forward, from. All right? So I was in the army from 1987, right? Until 1991, all right? But if I say in, that's different from from, okay? In the beginning, you understand the difference in the beginning or from the beginning, okay? And uh, similar to the difference between was and became, as we deal with it there in John chapter 1. Let's look at that. John chapter 1. Hold your finger in Proverbs 8. John chapter 1. The fourth gospel written decades after the first three gospels. And clearly unique among all of the four gospels. Not only from how it begins, but for the content of all the uh, chapters. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we have uh, statements of being here on an eternal basis with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. Jesus Christ is the agent of creation. And we want to keep that in mind because there's some verses in Proverbs 8 that we stop and say, well, wait a minute. It looks like the Father's doing all that. Wait a minute, I thought the Son's doing all that. We want to be careful because I think it's a beautiful way that Proverbs 8 connects together with John chapter 1. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The light shines in the darkness. See, this is a far different light than sun, moon, and stars. It bothers some people that God said, let there be light, and there was light on day one when sun, moon, and stars don't appear till day four. And they get all worried about because the only light they know about is the physical light of the universe. All right? There's a lot more to light than that. In fact, physical light, according to the laws of physics, is simply a, an illustration uh, uh, to communicate what the spiritual light is all about. The revelation of God himself to... Um, moral minds capable to receive that information so the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it getting on down to let's see verse uh then we have the john the baptist here in verses six seven and eight he was not the light but he came to bear to testify about the light then there's the true light coming into the world enlightens every man why is that why is light illuminating to humanity I would submit to you because the light himself is humanity. God the Son is true humanity. And he has been true humanity since the beginning day, the day he was begotten. So the true light coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He is the creator of everything. And uh, significant that he is not just God the Son that's the creator of everything, but it is the God-man. God the Son in true humanity that created everything, created the world, His earth. 
and had my delight in the sons of men, it says. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. The begotten one allows us to be begotten. All right, then we get to be begotten. Not of the will of man, not of the flesh, but of the spirit. We get to become begotten when we're born again. And that's only through the begotten one that made this all possible. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That's why we have two birthdays. And, uh, you know, you get one birthday is your physical birthday. And then whenever you uh, received Christ, you got your second birthday. For me, there was a almost a five-year gap in between. I was September of, uh, I was nearly, I was four months short of turning five when that happened. And the Word became flesh, John 1, 14. That is so important. Because this is our first use of became. We didn't, the, the Word didn't, didn't become God. The Word was God. You can't become God. God, by definition, is. (laughs) He is the I am. You can't become an I am. Only the I am is. That's a part of Satan's big failure. He wants to become an I am, and he can't. He already is a creature. And a creature, once he's created, can't come along and then retroactively become an uncreated I am. He is a creature. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now it is interesting, this like I say, uh, in the virgin birth of, of the humanity of Jesus Christ, in the virgin birth, in the Bethlehem manger, a, a body was birthed because the word became flesh. But what we're trying to do in the, in the development of Proverbs 8 is to separate the issue of the birth of his body with the actual birthing of his human nature, the birthing of his human spirit that he became humanity before the foundation of the earth. All right? And that's the point where, that's the thesis that we're defending in this, in this development. So it doesn't say that uh, God the Son became human. It says the Word became flesh. And we want to be careful with that. Dwelt among us, we beheld his glory. And you'll notice down to verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. That would be the Father. The only begotten God, that would be the Son, begotten in his humanity, in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The reason why God the Son entered into humanity or entered into uh, space and time was as a revelation of the Father. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. All right. So in the beginning was the Logos. This is the Gospel of John's theological unfolding of from the beginning was the wisdom. And the wisdom was begotten woven and birthed and this is what we're going to develop in proverbs 8 the wisdom was begotten woven and birthed begotten woven and birthed that i fixed the slide from last week begotten woven and birthed and this is verse 22 23 24 and 25 begotten is 22 with the verb kana woven is verse 23 uh, it's translated established in the, new, in the New American Standard. I'll fix that for you. And then it's, it's rendered as brought forth in verse 24 and in verse 25 both. Both verses have brought forth or delivered. Wisdom was begotten, woven, and birthed or delivered. Birthed, I think. I like birth better. Delivered is, to me speaks of saved. <laughs> right? I was saved. I was delivered. Let's, let's leave that alone. Let's leave... Let's leave delivery in a salvation realm and let's leave birthed in a uh, labor and birthing realm. Okay. So as a component though, let's understand this. Humanity is not eternal. Humanity is not eternal. You may encounter folks that want to say, well, hypostatic union is eternal. Uh, he, that God the Son has always been God, the God-man. From, from, you know, always making humanity eternal like deity, and that's we can't do that. I think it violates Proverbs 8, and then I think theologically it violates Trinity. I think it violates the equality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If, if, if Jesus has an eternal component in terms of humanity that the Father and the Holy Spirit don't have, then he's a different kind of God than the Father and the Holy Spirit. 
And I think theologically, it, it's very tough to try to defend an eternal humanity of Christ. Uh, just theologically, I think it's, it's, it's a non-starter. And then you get to Proverbs 8 and you say, well, wait, here's where humanity was begotten, woven, and birthed. Okay, Just like we are begotten, woven, and birthed in our humanity. All right. Yahweh acquired wisdom at the beginning. And then he was woven and birthed from the beginning. We have both an at and a from in these verses. Yahweh acquired wisdom. Acquired wisdom. Again, um, we've said several times before that when you have Yahweh in the Old Testament, sometimes uh, those are Yahweh references apply to God the Father. Sometimes Yahweh references apply to God the Son. Sometimes a Yahweh reference will apply to both the Father and the Son together in the unity that Jesus speaks of when he says, I and the Father are one. Um, There are other places, though, where it's the angel of Yahweh, that clearly is God the Son. There are other places where it's the Spirit of Yahweh, and that is clearly God the Holy Spirit. But if all we have is Yahweh as a name, um, it's worth considering, is this passage dealing with the Father, or is this passage dealing with the Son? Or is this passage dealing with the Father and the Son together in their unity? And I think that's a, a worthwhile exercise. And some, or, in some cases, Yahweh represents just the Godhead itself, God in general, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, without any kind of a, a Trinitarian distinction. But in this case, because we have a begetting that takes place, we have a Father-Son uh, uh, metaphor throughout this passage, I think it's clear that Yahweh is the Father and wisdom is the Son. All right, Yahweh is the Father and wisdom is the Son uh, because uh, that's the direction it goes when, when something is begotten. A son does not beget a father, a father begets a son. And uh, that ought to be obvious. All right, the verb is kana. And I want to get right back to this because we ran out of time last week and looking at a lot of these verses, but the verb is kana. And kana just means to get. And uh, we can translate it to beget instead of get if, in fact, the context is a, is a procreative-type context. If it's a birthing context, well, then there's nothing wrong with turning get into beget. And uh, we do the same thing in English with get and beget. And so uh, in Genesis 4.1, uh, 4, uh, Eve begat Cain. And she named him Cain because she connawed him. And this is the, the first use of Cana anywhere in the Scripture is with the conception of Cain and Abel. The man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, which comes from Cana, Cain. And she said, I have cana a man-child, the Lord. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And so uh, we can render this as beget. In Genesis 14, we have Cana uses. In verse 19 and verse 22. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, Cana, possessor, getter, obtainer, creator of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And so here's a use of Cana that speaks of creation. All right, so there's a beginning use, there's a creation use. I think both are in view when the humanity of Christ is birthed and created. All right, Deuteronomy 32.6. Some of these I know we saw as we were running out of time last week, so a little slight redundance. Deuteronomy 32.6. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who begot, who bought you? He has made you and established you. And so here we have a kana use. And notice it's connected with a purchase and a creation. He has bought you. He has made you. He has established you. Good illustrations for how useful this word is. And then, I know we looked at this one, Ruth chapter 4. Everything that goes into acquiring. <laughs> and that's the thing. The verbs, it just means to get something, to acquire something. And so you can get something a lot of ways. 
you can birth it, you can create it, you can buy it, you can steal it. Uh, you can, there's a lot of ways you can get something. Okay, moral ways and immoral ways. Just think of all the ways you can get something. Um, that's that's Kana. Kana has all that full range of flexible uses. And here we have it in Ruth 4. As uh, Boaz is offering the uh, redemption right to the closer kinsman than him, he says, I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here, before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. All right, so there in, uh, it's rendered to, uh, to buy in, uh, in uh, verse 4. But then in verse 5, Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire, it's used twice, the first time it's translated by, the second time it's acquire, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. All right, so if you buy one, you get the other. <laughs> okay, package deal. And those are the uses there. Verse 8, verse 9, verse 10. Verse 8, the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, acquire it for yourself. Acquire it for yourself. In verse 9, Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have acquired from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired, in verse 10, Ruth the Moabitess. And so it's really, I don't know, it's, it's interesting how this one verb has so many different translations in the English simply because, you know, there's, there's a, a wide range of usage. Um, but the unfortunate thing is, is in the process of doing that, of giving it this big spectrum of translation is that we, we miss the fact that it's kana every single time. All right, and maybe it would be useful for us to have um, a kana usage so that we... Uh, Keep track of that. All right, Psalm 139 and verse 13. Beautiful chapter for a lot of reasons, including the nature of pregnancy and birth and aspects here. As David talks about, where can I go from your spirit? In verse 7. You know, it's great. This this powerful psalm. David wrote this psalm. I love Psalm 139. Uh, if I want to meditate on God's omniscience, I go to Psalm 139. If I want to meditate on God's omnipresence, I go to Psalm 139. They're just beautiful themes in this psalm. And so, uh, you know, you've searched me and you know me. You understand everything. You scrutinize my path. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. Before there's a word on my tongue, you know it all. I mean, he knows my heart. He knows my thinking. Before I say anything, he knows it. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Can I hide from God? I can't hide from God. See, there's a great song about uh, I cannot hide from God. And uh, anyway, if I ascend to heaven, there you are. If I make my bed in Sheol, there you are. If I take the wings of the dawn, you know, I mean, this is some hyperbole in this. There's some hyperbole in this as, as uh, you know, I've, he can't literally go to heaven or go to hell, but if he could, God would chase him down because God's omnipresent. God would be there and uh, so forth. Um, verse 13, you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. Even before I knew I was me, you knew I was me and you were there. All right. And formed my inward parts is the Kana and wove me. Is, a, is an interesting connection there because we have a similar language when we go from verse 22 to verse 23 in Proverbs 8 with weaving. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Why? Why is a woman's womb described as the depths of the earth? <laughs> Why? I mean, we know that he wasn't in the depths of the earth, that he was in uh, Jesse, Mrs. Jesse's womb. All right. We don't know Jesse's wife's name, do we? No. Um, but, and this is not the only place either. Woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Well, I mean, ultimately, aren't we all dirt? 
if Adam was woven from the dirt, then and where were we? In the loins of Adam, right? And so, I mean, consider modern modern science has kind of spoiled some things with sonograms and the capacity we have now to, you know, visualize and view the uh, the, the mysteries of of, uh, of childbirth and, and a pregnant woman and that. You know, I had a chance to to see all four of my kids on sonograms and whatever, and watching them wave at me and things like that. Um, but they haven't invented a sonogram machine yet that can show the pre-Adamic dust, the depths of the earth. Interesting thing to consider. That when God molded out of the dust and molded Adam, he actually molded every human that would ever walk this planet after that. Doesn't that boggle the mind? All right. And your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. We often call this the X number of days. I think it's an X, Y, and Z number of days. God establishes his directive will, his permissive will, and his overruling will in uh, the days that we live. We can extend those if we're uh, honoring our father and mother. We can extend our time on this earth. We can also shorten them through the sin and the death and divine wrath. But the X number of days, the Y number of days, and the Z number of days are all determined by the sovereignty of God in the divine decrees. All right, so there's Kana in uh, Psalm 139. We have Kana before we get to Proverbs 8 in Proverbs 4. Kana uses. Proverbs 4, 5, and 7. Proverbs 4, 5 says, Kana wisdom, Kana understanding. Do not forget or turn away from the words of my mouth. Now, how do I acquire wisdom? How do I acquire understanding? Do I buy them? No. Do I create them? No. Do I birth them? No. I'm trying to think through all the different ways we've seen Kana can support you know, a wide spectrum of, of applications here. Um, no. The only way to acquire wisdom is to freely accept what God is freely giving to study, to show yourself approved, to live in the Word of God, to allow Him to teach you the wisdom that He's freely offering. And the best way to get something is accept it when it's given to you. So it says in verse 6, Do not forsake her, she will guard you. Love her, she will watch over you. Verse 7, The beginning of wisdom is kana wisdom. Acquire wisdom. And with your acquiring, which is another form, get, that's kana again, understanding so kana wisdom and with your i think it's kinyan it's a it's a noun form with your acquiring kana understanding so there's two kanas and there's a noun cognate there and they're translated as acquire acquiring and get probably because they thought it would be just too redundant to have a third acquire in the same verse (laughs) okay the beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom, and with all your acquiring, acquire understanding. I suspect the translators just said, let's throw some variety in here. And sadly, I think uh, if it was me, I would have left it redundant to pound the point home. All right, so that's Proverbs 4, verse 5 and verse 7, two uses in each verse. Proverbs eight twenty-two is our verse that we're looking at today in these uses of Kana. I'm going to read an article from the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament. All right, on the verb kana. And uh, this is useful as uh, a, a, an expression to, or to demonstrate that the realm of begetting is perfectly valid within the range of kana. Evidently, there, there came to be a point of time that lexicographers and and Hebrew scholars and other folks um, started to dislike begetting as a term for kana. Even though it's in Genesis 4.1, I think they began to struggle with it because of the Proverbs 8 use. And in this lexicon, actually, they defend it very well. So as a verb, so yeah, here's kana, mikne, mikna, and uh, kinyan. Kinyan is the noun that I couldn't think of a minute ago in Proverbs chapter 4. 
All right, so as a verb, the earlier lexicons cite a single root, kana, with two meanings, acquire and create. And uh, the verb kana, acquire, possess, is widely attested in the Semitic languages, North Arabian, South Arabian, Ethiopic, Aramaic, uh, example in Ezra chapter 7, Neo-Assyrian, Hebrew. In other words, throughout the entire Semitic-speaking world, those radical letters, the three radicals of kana, uh, are employed. The meaning retain appears in Old Babylonian, Ugaritic, and Aramaic. In addition, uh, the verb can refer to the conception of a child. In this context, it means beget or bring into the world. All right? This is across the, the Semitic language spectrum. It's not limited to Hebrew. This usage is attested in South Arabian inscriptions, Ugaritic, Hebrew, and Amorite onomastics. The meaning create instead would be attested only in the Western Semitic and in the Arabic lexicon Al-Kamus, where it refers to a human being created by God. But this Arabic parallel is suspicious, since the reference might be to a slave of God as suggested by, and then it goes on to see these other things. Let me get down here. So it says this meaning of create is consequently to be rejected. Furthermore, a statistical survey shows that of 83 occurrences of Canaan in the Old Testament, only four imply the meaning beget or bring into the world. And they include Genesis 4.1, Deuteronomy 32.6, Psalm 139.13, and Proverbs 8.22. And we saw them all already this morning. All right. Uh, there's two additional ones in Genesis 14, and we also saw, that may imply the meaning create. None of the nouns derived from Cana ever refers to conception or creation. Those would be the nouns. But as far as the verb is concerned, we're dealing with a verb this morning in Proverbs chapter 8. Apart from the six texts mentioned above, the primary usage of the verb Cana is concrete and economic. It remains so through the last period of spoken Hebrew as a, as a uh, contract from Rabbah proves. In other words, you're buying something. That's another way that you can acquire something. So if it's referring to real estate, to a field, a vineyard, a house, well, you don't birth those, you buy those. Uh, the ransom of a prisoner, the purchase of a wife, the purchase of a slave, spices, or unspecified property. So if it's something that you might purchase, and obviously money's exchanging hands, we have no problem translating kana as buy or purchase. See... In the book of Proverbs, proverbial wisdom transfers the use of kana to the intellectual realm, representing the acquisition of wisdom or insight as a profitable transaction. So in some respects, you can think of this acquiring wisdom as, yeah, I'm purchasing wisdom, but I'm not paying the price. Christ paid the price. Say, I find that's interesting. Several texts, kana means explicitly to acquire by monetary payment. And then uh, the uses in the Hifil and the Nifal, um, making a distinction between the acquirer and the owner. That God is the possessor of heaven and earth. Why? Well, because he owns it. He created it. He cannot it. Beget and to bear. If analysis of the biblical text raises doubts, as to whether a single root can be used with two meanings as different as acquire and beget, the South Arabian use of kani eliminates any uncertainty by demonstrating the existence of a semantic, semantic shift that justifies including the two different meanings of kana under a single root. The usual meaning of kani is acquire, but some texts use the verb to denote the beginning of a child. And here's these other examples. Again, beyond the biblical examples, to show that it was common normal usage in the, the vast spectrum of Western Semitic languages. So in a Sabean votive inscription, two husbands and a woman named, whatever her name is, Safnasser, they thank the god Almakah because they have begotten healthy children. And in that, in that uh, treatise, the, the verb that's used there is our kana verb. They praise him because they have begotten five boys and a girl uh, with their wife, uh, Again, Safnasser. There's another text speaks of begetting healthy male children. Again, using Kana. 
In modern South Arabian dialects, the same root has acquired the meaning of bringing up children. So it goes even beyond the conception and the, the beginning of a children to actually also include the, uh, the raising of the children. That's what they told us. They said, by the way, the, the childbirth is the easy part. Raising them is even more, even more painful. All right. <laughs> so uh, to become the possessor of, to acquire, used in the sense of begetting, and uh, acquiring something not previously possessed, which may be done by buying it, making it, or in the case of a child, by begetting it. By begetting it. Journal article there by a guy named Bernie. The meaning beget is likewise attested in Ugaritic. In a text, uh, Kerit voices his desire to have children. Would that I could beget sons. Elsewhere, the participle kanin means our begetter. And the epithet kani elim of the goddess uh, Atharat describes her as the bearer of gods. In Amorite onomastics, the proper name kaniatum characterizes a woman as a genetrix, that is a birther, a begetter. The name of another woman may derive from the proper name like Yakniel, God has begotten, reappears uh, in Ugaritic. Later equivalents of these names include Elkanah. Remember the husband of Hannah? Elkanah? El has begotten. All right. The verb kana probably alludes to the birth of the child bearing that name. So samas kanana, nabu kanana, other uh, names in uh, Babylonian. Mesopotamia, where these names are found, a personal name with a theophorus element like Nabu or Shamash generally serves as a reminder that the child is a gift of the deity. In the New Testament, in the Old Testament, only four texts use Kana in the sense of beginning a child. Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 139, Proverbs 8, Genesis 4, and we've seen them already in the course of our study. The point is, is that those who are objecting to Proverbs 8 being a child-bearing passage can't make the claim that they're trying to make because Kana does have the sense of begetting in a childbearing passage. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 likens Yahweh to a father who begot Israel, while Psalm 139 sees him as a personal God who begot his child in the mother's womb. Personal names like Elkanah cited above may also allude to the divine participation in the conception of a child, right? God is the one that opens the womb. He closes the womb. So if he opens the womb and allows the father, the human father and the human mother to procreate and to give birth, um, the father is, uh, has a role in that. Proverbs 8, personified wisdom, speaking in hymnic style, proclaims that God begot her and that she was wrought forth, that she was woven, cholati. Uh, we'll talk about that as well. In uh, before anything else existed. And this meaning of kana conforms to the usage of the verb in Ugaritic. And its use with a feminine subject attested in Ugaritic appears in Genesis 4.1 where Eve declares, I have brought a man into the world with Yahweh. All right, and then we can skip through the rest of this mythology unless you're interested in mythology. All right. Anyway, that's the article there in uh, TDOT. If you don't have TDOT or you want a copy, let me know. I can certainly make a PDF of the entire thing. All right. So there's Kana. Yahweh begot wisdom before the foundation of the earth. Again, Proverbs 8, my translation. Yahweh begat me at the beginning of his way before his works of old, before his works from eternity, before his works of old, of all the works of God that were in the earliest ages of time, the beginning of humanity was the first. At the beginning of his way, before his works of old, from, never get the from, golam, make olam, from everlasting, I was woven from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. From everlasting, I was woven. So here's point D. 
Yahweh wove wisdom from everlasting, from the beginning. And here we got some manuscript puzzles and some other issues that uh, we can look at in the Hebrew text. Yahweh wove wisdom from everlasting, from the beginning. Stated here and in the verses we already saw in Psalm 139, verse 13 and verse 15. And the verb is nasak, or the verb is possibly sakak. I think the verb is nasak. In any way, um, sometimes a manuscript gets, and, and the noon, the letter N in Hebrew, sometimes gets squished out and removed. <laughs> and sometimes it gets, uh, because it's a soft, uh, a soft letter anyway. But uh, nasak or, or sakak, or sokak as a participle, but that's fine. The um, Strong's number 5258, 5259, 5260, or Strong's number 5526, depending on which manuscript you want to look at. Nasak. By the way, to show you what a puzzle this verb is, Nosak is the same verb, but James Strong's went ahead and gave it three different numbers <laughs> for the very same verb because it, it seems to have different applications, including established or poor or fix or weave. And it is this use of Nosak as weave that I think is what we have here in Proverbs chapter 8. It is a weaving that takes place, not a pouring, not a fixture. Although maybe, maybe the, the metaphor is supposed to take us there in terms of pouring a foundation. Anything that's poured that then sets and hardens is made secure, is made firm, is established. And so there, that could be the language because we have the foundation of the earth. We have um, something that's settled in verse 25 and there's other uh, establishing in verse 27 when he established the heavens i was there um in verse 28 when the springs of the deep became fixed in uh, in verse 29 when he marked the foundations of the earth so there are verses in this creation context that speak of the the fixture the setting the stability or the the uh, the soundness the the solidity of something i just don't think it's there in verse 28 I think rather than established, we ought to render this as woven. From everlasting, I was woven. All right. And I can go ahead and show you this here. Since I left the software up and running. All right. Proverbs 8.22. I'll get rid of those other windows. There we go. So from everlasting I was established with a footnote or consecrated or something else or something else. <laughs> Anytime it gives you multiple options, you realize the translators are struggling. And so you got Nasak. In fact, you got Nasak, the second heading of Nasak. If you do your, your color wheels there, you'll find it's a second heading. Let me just bring up the Strong's number here. And I'll show you what we're looking at. 5258, or it could be 5259, or it could be 5260. All right? Because like I say, the, uh, James Strong's, when he put this together, didn't know what to do with Nossack. and <laughs> gave it three different numbers. All right? He does that occasionally with some other terms as well. So there's nasak, primitive root, translated as to pour out, to pour, uh, to melt, something molten, uh, to pour, to offer, to cast, like if you're dealing with a metal image, something that is then poured in a super hot state and then it hardens. So to cast a metal image, that's the same kind of pouring that would happen uh, of, uh, of, uh, of an oil. If you're going to pour oil on a king, if you're going to anoint the king, all right? There's a difference between pouring and smearing. But uh, so, you know, if you're familiar with the Messiah vocabulary, of the Mashiach vocabulary of the anointing, but here it's pouring, is the verb nasak. 
to pour out libations or drink offerings. Instead of drinking them, you pour them out to set or to install. That's one aspect of Nasak. There's also, strong number 5259, uh, to weave, to spread or to weave. And uh, strong, uh, the, the note there is probably identical with 5258 through the idea of fusion. Anyway, the idea is to weave. And I think that's the better way to handle uh, the verb here in verse 23. From everlasting I was woven from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. Because we have the Kana reference in verse 22 and we have the birthing reference in verse 24 and verse 25. And the connection between this and Psalm 139 I think is unmistakable. And then 5260 is to offer, to sacrifice, to pour out, to offer, or to sacrifice. There's a Nossack rendering there, to sacrifice. So from everlasting I was sacrificed. Well, uh, okay, he is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. I can defend that from Revelation 13, but I don't think that's what's being said there. I don't see a sacrifice in this chapter. I see a begetting in this chapter. He was canod, he was woven, he was birthed, he was birthed. And that's the aspect of it that David testifies to in Psalm 139, that he was begotten, he was woven, he was birthed. So uh, in any event, if the verb is nasak, then I would suspect that we ought to take it in the 5259 application, not the 5258 application that the uh, New American Standard went with. The other question is, maybe it's not even Nossack at all, that uh, the manuscripts have a, a gloss and that the actual reading the, uh, the actual reading is in conformity with Psalm 139, actually uses the verb sakak. And in sakak, um, what number did I say that was? That would be number uh, 5526. If sakak would be our rendering, then we would have aspects like hedging, uh, blocking, screening, protecting, weaving. That's the uh, fourth use there at the bottom. To weave, to weave together, uh, to, uh, and that's the, that's the weaving term in, in, again, Psalm 139. You wove me in my mother's womb. You formed, you kanad my inward parts. All right, so some fun things there. By the way, if you're looking up your Hebrew, you get a chance in this to, uh, to uh, learn how to use your Hebrew apparatus. <laughs> you get a chance to uh, look at your footnotes in the text here in verse 23 and ask yourself, it's your B footnote there, and to evaluate the different Hebrew manuscripts with the Septuagint traditions and the um, Aramaic uh, targums. There we go. The proposed reading of Sakak as per Psalm 139 and verse 13. So Dan and Lewis, anyone else that wants to read your Hebrew uh, apparatus, you get a good practice there in Psalm in Proverbs 8.23. All right, so wisdom was begotten. Wisdom was woven. Wisdom was birthed. And the verb is chul. This is, this is a chul Hebrew verb. This verb is so chul, you're going you're gonna, to uh, appreciate how chul this verb is. All right? And the verb is just so chul. Just get guttural with your ch sound. Okay? If you had German, that helps. Uh, but chul. And this is our verb to writhe, to travail, to birth. It speaks of writhing in pain and uh, doesn't have to be a childbearing context, but if a baby is produced, then it's no problem translating the verb as birthing, to writhe, to travail, or to birth, as per Job 15.7, Psalm 51.7, and Isaiah 66.8. Isaiah 66.8. And I'm out of time. So we'll have to save F and G for next week. Letter F is going to take a while anyway. 
Not next week, two weeks. That's right, two weeks. Two weeks from today, we'll come back and with the main point F. Also, we'll look at these verses for Chul. We'll look at all our Chul verses in two weeks. And then uh, we'll develop the, uh, the understanding of the firstborn from all creation and how it connects here in the realities of why God the Father intends to magnify Jesus Christ for all eternity. Why it is that the plan of God is to not only create everything through him, but to create everything for him. Through him and for him, for his eternal glory. And that's the Father's ultimate plan. Thank you, Father, for your truth for this day, for the blessings of studying to show ourselves approved. And I thank you for your son. I thank you, Father, for your plan to glorify him. And the fact that I get to benefit in that is, uh, is, is, is humbling and amazing and, and almost uh, mind-boggling in, in, to think that uh, I receive eternal life and I'm a part of the bride of Jesus Christ. And that is so that you can glorify your son even more. And Father, I thank you for uh, all these things that you make clear to each one of us. I pray that we would be mindful of them. I pray that we would be motivated to walk in a manner worthy. Not because we are worthy, but because he's worthy. Walking in a manner worthy of the calling which with, with which we have been called. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.